All right, so if you remember last week, we uh, covered obviously chapter 13. And in chapter 13, we, we met two interesting characters, two beasts. Um, one came out of the sea, one came out of the land. Uh, watching them were, was Satan standing on the, the seashore. So really you've got these three characters. And what we um, determined is that they represent this unholy trinity, you know, the, a bad representation of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So you've got Satan being the guy who's always wanted to be God. He's, he's wanted to usurp God and is still trying to do that. You've got the Antichrist, who is the false Christ, the false Messiah, and you have the false prophet uh, who comes along and is the second in command under Antichrist, and they form this unholy trinity. And so we looked at them last week, and the reason I think God reveals them to John is that they play such a vital role in the tribulation period, that seven-year period of time out there in the future, where Satan is huge. He gives his power, his authority, his throne to the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the most powerful uh, ruler the world has ever seen, like no other ruler uh, the world has ever seen. He rules over a kingdom like no other kingdom that's ever been. If you think back over all the kingdoms, empires, dynasties that this world has known, including our own, and they're nothing. They pale in comparison to what's going to be on this planet during the tribulation, and Antichrist will be over it. He will be ruler over all things. And then he's got this second-hand man, this lieutenant who works for him, the false prophet who has power, who has influence. He speaks on behalf of Satan, and he influences people. And the way he influences them is through deception. And we saw this last week. And by the signs that it, the false prophet, is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, Antichrist, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So this individual has the ability to influence people through deception, but not just through his words, through his actions. We're, we're told in chapter 13 that he sets up an idol of Antichrist in the Holy of Holies. He desecrates the temple. They put a stop to the sacrificial system. And people are commanded to, ordered to worship this idol of the Antichrist. He even has the ability, the power to give life to that statue, that idol. And so he sways people, not just with his words, he speaks on behalf of Satan, the father of lies, but he also sways them by his actions, by his powers. And the bottom line is people are deluded. Now, in 2 Thessalonians, we have this passage that is one of those passages that, that rubs a lot of us the wrong way because it reveals something about our God that's a little bit uncomfortable. And it has much to do with what we're talking about in this period of time. Listen to what it says. This is Paul. The coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception. So we've seen that in chapter 13, Revelation. Uh, Satan gives his power, his throne, and his authority to Antichrist. He's got this false prophet working for him who is a liar, who is deceptive, and who has all this power, and they deceive. And they deceive those who are perishing, and this is where it gets kind of weird, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth that had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, you may go, well, I don't have any problem with that. 
but you should have a, some of a problem with that just because it's telling you that God deludes these people to the point at which they can't believe. Well, I thought God wanted everybody to believe. The important thing we ought to understand here is that what Paul is talking about is a period of time. He's talking about the end times. He's talking about a specific group of people, and we're going to see it in this chapter, that these are people who have all accepted the mark of the beast. They have chosen to worship Antichrist and by extension, Satan. So these are people who have made a choice and God has deluded them because of the choice they've made. They've rejected truth and accepted the lie. He deludes them to where they will never be able to accept the truth. He's turned them over. It's not unlike what we see in Romans chapter two. God turned them over. God gave them over to love for the same sex, love for immorality. Uh, that's what you're seeing here. This is the end times. This is as everything starts to come to a close, there's this, not only the deception from Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet, but these people are deluded. They cannot believe. They are stuck where they are, worshiping the Antichrist. Well, that leads us into chapter 14. And John's going to see some more kind of strange stuff. This time he's going to see some angels. Now, these are angels. These are godly representatives. And we know that because of what they say and what they do. So in verse 1, it says, I look, John looks, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their forehead. Now, we already covered that back in chapter 11. These are 144,000 Jews who have been redeemed by God and they become witnesses on the planet during the tribulation and they bring to faith not only other Jews but Gentiles in huge numbers. And this will take place all throughout the tribulation. So where are they? They're on Mount Zion. Now when you, when you read the book of Revelation, John always kind of gives you clues as to where he is because he's like on this... Um, yo-yo going back and forth between heaven and earth. And sometimes he says, and I saw in heaven. Sometimes he says, and I saw on earth. In this case, he says, behold, on Mount Zion, that's going to be critical. He sees the lamb. We got to figure out who that is. I hope it's not difficult. Uh, he sees 144,000. I think we've already established who the 144,000 are. So all of this he's seeing, and it's taking place somewhere. Where? Well, he tells us it's taking place on Mount Zion. What does that mean? It's Jerusalem. It always has meant Jerusalem. It's, it's not heaven. It's Jerusalem. If you read the Old Testament, anytime you see Zion, it's a reference to Jerusalem. You see this in Psalm 2.6. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that Jerusalem sat on a hill. What hill? Mount Zion. That's what it's called. And that's why this is referring to Mount Zion. So it's telling us something about the location. John sees into the future an event, and it's a pretty critical event. He sees something happening in Jerusalem, in the confines of Jerusalem. Now, this is a topographical map, and it kind of shows us what's going on here. You see Mount Zion. That, that whole area there in the middle is Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits on Mount Zion. Now, it's not like a mountain you would see in Colorado. It's not that tall, but in the context of the Middle East, it's, pretty, it's a pretty tall area. That's why 
in the uh, Psalms, you, you have these uh, references to let us go up to Zion, let us go up to Jerusalem. It doesn't matter if you're coming from the north, south, east, and west, you're going up because you're going up in elevation. It's the highest point. And so you see Zion, you see Mount Moriah, where the temple is. You see across the Kidron Valley over on the right, Mount, the Mount of Olives, uh, where the Garden of Gethsemane was. So all of this is Mount Zion. So why is that important? What does John see? John sees on Mount Zion something pretty important, the lamb. Well, who's the lamb? We've already established this is Jesus Christ. This is the Messiah. So where is he? He's on Mount Zion. Now, every other time in the book of Revelation, where has John seen the Messiah? Up in heaven, at the right hand of the Father, chapter 5. But now he sees him on earth. He's on Mount Zion. Back in Revelation 5, it says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is the same lamb. This is... Jesus Christ in his resurrected form. That's why he's referred to as a lamb as slain. It's talking about his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. But now it's talking about what? His descending. He's come back. So John is seeing really the end of the book of Revelation, the end of the tribulation, when Jesus Christ comes back to earth. And we're only in chapter 14. So it's like he's getting a preview of, of coming events, a preview of things to come. And with him, with the lamb, standing on Zion in Jerusalem are who? The 144,000. Who are they? Well, there are those who say, well, that's the church. Well, how do they get that? Well, you go all the way back to chapter 5 and chapter 6, and they have already determined that when it says the 144,000 Jews, it doesn't mean 144,000 Jews. It means the church. How they get there, I'm not really sure. Because it goes on to say, from every tribe of the nation of Israel. And then it goes on and lists the tribes. 12,000 from Dan, 12,000 from Manasseh, 12,000 from Ephraim. How do they get there? I'm not really sure. But it's pretty clear to me that this is talking about Jews the same Jews we saw back in chapter seven. It says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from where? Every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now I've been grafted in, but I'm not a member of any tribe that I know of. I'm not a Jew, never have been, never will be. I've been grafted in, to the tree, but I'm, I'm not original. This is talking about the 144,000. So again, why is this significant? What is John being shown by God? Jesus Christ has come back to earth and standing with them are the 144,000. And it goes on, it says, those who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads, they had been marked, they had been sealed by God. And part of that sealing was, these individuals will live through the entire tribulation period. They will not be able to be martyred. They will not be put to death by the Antichrist. Doesn't mean they won't be persecuted, but God will protect them and keep them alive so that they can do their job for the entire seven years. What's their job? Evangelization, spreading the gospel. 
So all the way up until the end, they will have been spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ all around the world. And millions of people will come to faith. But John goes on and says, and I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. He hears a voice. Where is it coming from? Heaven. He's on earth with the lamb, with 144,000 in Jerusalem, and they hear a voice. It's really multiple voices because it's going to be loud. It's going to be um, unavoidable. You, you can't ignore it. Now, it's interesting here. There's three different descriptions, and John uses like three different times. Remember, that's his go-to word when I don't know how to, else to describe this. It's kind of like this. It's like many waters. It's like the sound of thunder. And then he says, and it's like harps, harpists playing on their harps. Those three things do not go together, right? Two do, but not the third. Harps don't sound like thunder. They don't sound like roaring waters. Well, I guess they could. If, you, if your child plays the harp and you go to their first recital, it probably does sound like that. But, but these things don't go together. It's, it's again, John is seeing a combination of two things, judgment, the thunder, the sound, the roar, the power of God, and the blessings of God, the worship of God. Because this, this passage is really kind of interesting because you're going to see juxtaposed all throughout this passage, many things. You're going to see blessing and cursing. You're going to see redemption and wrath. And here we have judgment and worship because harps are always tied to worship in the scriptures. Worship of who? Worship of God. Why? Well, we're going to see in just a second. He says, the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. There's something going on up in heaven, and it's been going on since the start of the book. John has seen this scene before, and there's worship going on in heaven. Worship of who? Worship of God and the Lamb. But now the Lamb is no longer at the Father's side. He's on earth. He's standing on Mount Zion, and they're singing this new song. Well, what's the new song? It, has somebody just come up with it? Is it like on the top 10 hit list? What, what is this? What's the new song? Well, this phrase is found throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament, and it, it has reference to this. A new song in the Old Testament was a song of praise to God for new mercies, particularly victory over an enemy, and sometimes for God's work in creation. If Jesus Christ is back on earth, what's that mean? Something's about to happen. The end is about to happen. And part of the end is he's going to bring judgment on the nations. And he's going to bring in victory over the enemies of God, including who? Satan, Antichrist, false prophet, and all those who worship the false prophet and the Antichrist and Satan. So in a sense, it's a song of praise. We see this in Psalm 33. You godly ones, shout for joy because of the Lord. It is appropriate for the morally upright to offer him praise. Give thanks to the Lord with a harp. Sing to him with the accompaniment of a 10-stringed instrument. Sing to him what? A new song. It's, it's something new is about to happen. Something great is about to take place. Same thing in Isaiah 42. Sing to the Lord a brand new song. Praise him from the horizon of the earth. You who go down to the sea and everything that lives in it, you coastlands and those who live there, sing a new song. Now this song is not new to God. 
God's very familiar with this song because what it's singing about, what it is sharing is something that God has had planned from before the foundation of the world. It's new to those who hear it because something new is about to happen in their midst, in their context. And I think that's what we see here. Who is he with? Who is Jesus with, the lamb? He's with 144,000. And they're hearing, along with John, this song. And what does it say? No one could learn that song except who? The 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Why, why are they the only ones who can understand this song? Why is it reserved for them? Because of the role that they play. They are 144,000 Jews who have been redeemed by God, his decision, his choice, his mercy, his grace, his favor. He has redeemed them. He has placed them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And they are his witnesses. And they hear this song. And it's a new song. And it's going to mean something to them like nobody else in the world. That's why they get the song. They understand it. They have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. That's why it's so significant. It, they're standing with the one who's redeemed them, which is something you and I are going to get to do someday. We're going to get to stand with the lamb. We're going to see him face to face. And that's what they're doing. And they're hearing this song and there's the lamb standing with them. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, returned to earth. And they're the ones who get the song. It'd be like if you had been addicted to drugs or alcohol for 10, 15 years of your life and then God saved you out of that addiction. Only you could really appreciate what it means to be free from that addiction. Somebody who's never struggled with drugs would never get that freedom. They would never understand the joy that you feel. And that's what we see here. These people who have lived through seven and a half years of tribulation, trial, persecution. Remember, they have God's name and the Lamb's name written on their forehead while everybody else has what? Satan's name and they're persecuted. Can't be put to death, but they're persecuted. And now what? There's the lamb. And this song is a song of redemption, a song of joy. And we're not told what the content of the song is. In other words, John doesn't recite it because John doesn't understand it. Only 144,000. But here's what I think was part of it. You go back to chapter 11. We give you thanks, Lord God, the all-powerful, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. Remember back in chapter 11, John heard this song coming down from heaven, and we're only in chapter 11. And Jesus Christ hadn't come back yet. And yet they're up there acting as if he has, singing a song in the past tense. You've begun to reign. The nations were enraged. Your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged. The time has come to give you to your servants, the prophets, their reward, as well as to the saints and to those who revere your name, both small and great. The time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. I think this is probably part of what's in the song that they're hearing. Because guess what? If he's standing on Mount Zion, the time has come. It's the end. And that has all kinds of weight in it. Jesus Christ comes back to earth for one reason only, to redeem and to reap, as we'll see in the latter parts of this chapter.
It goes on in verse four. It's these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It's these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits for God. So you see, once again, who's it talking about? The 144,000. John is very specific. He's talking about this particular group. And he even describes that they're, they're males, they're men who have remained virgins and they've not had sex. Now I had a guy come up Tuesday night uh, and he, he goes, man, I'm really struggling with this passage. And I'm like, man, of all the passages you could struggle with, why are you struggling with this one? He goes, I don't get it. How could 144,000 men do without sex for seven years? I'm like, well, that's a good point. I don't know if I could do it for seven days, but they do it for seven years. It's a miracle. God basically takes these men and they lose their desire for, their need for sexual relations. Why? So they can focus on one thing and one thing only. What? The sharing of the gospel. No distractions. None of them get married. None of them start a family because once you do that, guess what? You've got some distractions. But these men, these males, Jewish males are going to be singular in their focus and they're going to represent something. They are the first fruits for God. What does that mean? What is that talking about? What's John being told by God? Well, they're, they're part of a greater harvest to come. Now we're, we're concentrating right now on 144,000, but we know that there are far more people coming to faith in Christ because of their efforts. We already know that there are martyrs who are standing by the throne of God who are so great in number that we can't number them. And there are others on earth who haven't been martyred. So these, these men represent the first fruits, which takes us back to the Old Testament, the feast of the first fruits. And it was, it was annual in uh, the life of the Jews. And every year at the same time, they would celebrate God's provision of all their needs, their grain, their grapes, their barley, their wheat, their, their animals. And they would bring to him the first fruits, the first of the harvest. And they would give it to him. And it was a thanksgiving for what was to come. So what's this passage telling us? These 144,000 are dedicated to God, but they're just the beginning of more to come. And what's really interesting about this chapter is, and we'll see it in just a second, it's emphasizing the 144,000 whose sole job is to share the gospel. And they've been doing it for seven years. Now Jesus has come back. So think about that. All during this tribulation, when God is bringing judgment on the world, here's these 144,000 who've been sharing the gospel on whose part? God's. His grace, his mercy, his favor, even in the midst of rejection, even in the midst of persecution, even though most of the people on earth are worshiping Antichrist, he is still sharing the gospel with all those who haven't. Not everybody's taken the mark. And yet God's still sharing and more people are going to come to faith. And then something significant happens just after this. John sees his first angel flying through the air. And it means he's flying in mid heaven where he's visible. He's not up beyond where we can't see him. He's, he's flying through the air where everybody on earth can see him. And the, the idea is that he's almost like a satellite just going through the air around the earth. I know it's hard to believe, 
It's supernatural, but we're talking supernatural because of this book and because it's end times events. And it says, he's flying through the air with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every tribe, nation, language, and people. Now, we've said this before. Every time in Revelation it says, those who dwell on the earth, it's talking about the unredeemed, those who are not in Christ. So it doesn't include the 144,000 or anybody who's accepted Christ. It's all those who have not accepted Christ. And in particular, those who have not accepted the mark of the beast. Again, not everybody has accepted the mark of the beast. There are unbelievers who have, for whatever reason, chosen not to accept the mark of the beast. And they can't trade, they can't buy, they can't sell, they're persecuted. And yet, here's this angel flying through the air and he's got a message for him. What's his message? It's an eternal gospel. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's just take it apart. What does eternal mean? It means eternal, everlasting, no end. It literally means no beginning or end. It's always been. See, the gospel didn't come about when Adam and Eve sinned. God didn't go, God, man, that, I didn't see that one coming. It, it didn't happen when the Romans nailed Jesus to the cross. Well, good grief, I didn't know they were going to kill him. Now i got to raise him from the dead. Holy Spirit, go, go down there and raise Jesus from the dead. How, he got himself into trouble. No, this is everlasting. It's been from the found, before the foundation of the world. It's always been. It's always been God's plan. It's an everlasting gospel, which means it has everlasting ramifications. But it's good news. It's the gospel. That's what that word means in the Greek. It's, a, it's good news. But guess what? Whenever you have good news, what's associated with good news? There's usually bad news. Okay? If I go out today and win the lottery, that's great news for me. But if you bought a ticket, it's bad news for you. Unless I like you. And then I might share with you, but likely not. So it's good news. What does that mean? It's the glad tidings of what? The kingdom of God is soon to be set up. See, when Jesus came to earth the first time and John the Baptist and he were going around and they were saying what? The kingdom of heaven has come. It's near. Why? Because he's here. Now he's on the Mount of Zion with 144,000 and it's really near because he's about to wrap everything up. And that's good news. But it's bad news for some, some people, right? Because not everybody's gonna accept that good news. There are people living during the tribulation who are gonna continue to reject the offer. They've, they've rejected the offer of the 144,000. We're going to see later they've rejected the offer of the two witnesses. They're going to reject the offer of this angel flying through the air. And yet God graciously is allowing this angel to proclaim the good news, the everlasting gospel to every tribe, nation, and tongue. And he tells them three things. What's he tell them? Fear God, give him glory, and worship him. And see, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. But you can't do any of those three things without what? A relationship with Jesus Christ. You can't worship God in truth without coming to him through who? Christ. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. You can't truly give him glory if you refuse the son he sent to save you. You can't give him glory. And you most certainly can't worship him if you refuse to worship his son. So really what this angel is saying is, guys, 
God's giving you one more chance. He's offering you the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ so that you might be able to worship him, fear him, and give him glory. Don't give your glory to who? Antichrist and ultimately to Satan. Here's the grace of God, even in the midst of this last moment, the last chance on earth, and he's still sharing the gospel. Why? Because judgment has come. See, guys, this is so, so important for us to understand that, that judgment is coming, and no one in this room likes that part of God's character, unless it's on somebody we don't like. We love it when God judges somebody we don't like. And there's some people we know we would love to see God judge. And most of them are in politics. But this, this, this paints a really vivid picture for you and I of what's about to come. This book is full of, yes, the glory of God. It's full of the mercy of God, the grace of God, but it's also full of the wrath of God. And judgment has come. When John looks into the future and he sees this, Jesus Christ is standing there on Mount Zion and he's come to do something. Just like when he came the first time and was born of a virgin, he came to do something and he did it. He's come a second time and he's come to do something and he will do it. And time is running out. For who? Everyone alive. Everybody on the planet. And yet here's God giving mercy and grace yet one more time. Fear me. Honor me. Give me glory, worship me through my son, Jesus Christ, who's now standing on the Mount of Zion. I love this from 2 Corinthians. And this passage applies so greatly to Revelation chapter 14. Paul says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. These are the words of God. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That will be no truer at any time than in Revelation chapter 14, when Jesus Christ is standing on Mount Zion, salvation has come. This is the day. See, we, we are procrastinators as humans. We put off everything for the most part, unless you're a real high type A person and, and you're doing things that not, aren't due for two months. You did them yesterday, like my wife. See, this is a case where you don't wanna put off because Jesus is back and time is out. It's running out. Now's the day of salvation. And then he sees a second angel. So he's dealt with 144,000. I'm here to do something great for you. He's warning the people on earth. You better repent. You better place your faith in Christ. And then he warns Babylon. He says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. What's this talking about? Who is Babylon? Well, we're going to get into this in greater detail in a later chapter. But I'm just going to tell you right now, Babylon is Babylon. Babylon is a city. It is a place. And he tells them, you're going to fall. And he says it in the past tense. It's already happened. It's as good as done. Why? Because Christ is back. And when Christ comes back, he's going to deal with Babylon. He's going to deal with this city. But what is it? What does Babylon mean? Well, we know this from Scripture that Babylon has always represented anything that's evil. It's the epitome of evil. It's the poster child city of evil. And it goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel when Nimrod built this ziggurat to heaven or attempted to. Remember, God had told after the fall, he sent all the people out and he says, fill the world. Fill the world, spread across the world. And yet in Babel, what they did is they all gathered together and said, no, 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 let's all stay together. 
and let's build this tower to the skies and let's, let's ascend into heaven. And God goes, no, this isn't what I told you to do. And so he confuses their languages. They have languages for the first time and suddenly they can't communicate. And they spread out over the world doing what God had told them to do. But Babel became the symbol for rebellion against God, for autonomy and self-authority. And Babel became where Babylon existed for centuries. It still exists. It's still a place. And so when it talks about Babylon in Revelation, it's talking about a real city. Now, is it the city of Babylon rebuilt? Many say yes, others say no. Some say it's a reference to Washington, D.C. or Manhattan or Rome or pick your city, Moscow, Beijing. I think it's Babylon. Why? Because it says Babylon. I'm just that simple. And the fact that Babylon has always played a significant role in the lives of the people of Israel. I'm reading through um, the book of Isaiah right now and King Nebuchadnezzar and you know, here's an interesting kind of tidbit that you may not be aware of, but I, I wasn't really aware of it. But I'm reading, I think, chapter 47, and God is offering condemnations against Babylon, but he doesn't call them Babylon. He calls them the Chaldeans. I thought, well, I've seen that word before. I mean, what, why, why is he calling them the Chaldeans instead of Babylon? So I did a little study. The Chaldeans were nomads who lived in the southern part of Mesopotamia in what is now southern Babylon, what is now southern Iraq. Who came from Chaldea? Abram. Abram was from Ur of the Chaldees. He was a Chaldean. He wasn't a Jew. He was a Chaldean who God chose out of Chaldea and he sent him to where? The promised land, the land of Canaan. And out of him, he made a great nation. What nation? The Jews. And we're told in Isaiah chapter 47 is that God is going to use the Chaldeans to punish the Judeans for what? For immorality, rebellion, infidelity, idolatry. And they're going to go into captivity where? In Chaldea. But 70 years later, God's going to do what? He's going to redeem them out of slavery in Chaldea and return them where? The promised land. It's the exact thing he did with bringing Abram out of Chaldea and taking him to Judea. Now he's going to take the people of Judah out of Chaldea and take them back to the promised land. See, Babylon has always been a significant part in the lives of the people of Israel. And so I think this is the literal city of Babylon and it will become his operations center for Antichrist. It will be where everything takes place. He's a king in a sense. He's got a kingdom. We've already been told he's got to have a place. He's got to have an empire. He's got to have a Washington, D.C., where he rules from, and I believe it will be Babylon. And we're told that it's going to be great. It's going to be magnificent. We saw last week it's going to be like a kingdom like nobody's ever had before. I think it will be a city like no city we've ever seen before, opulent, rich, wealthy, immoral, and it's going to have prestige and power, but it's going to fall. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. When Jesus Christ comes back, he is going to destroy that city and everything that it represents. And here's, here's just something to help us understand it from the book of Jeremiah, talking about the destruction of Babylon. Jeremiah says to Sarai, when you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words and say, O Lord, you have said concerning this place, Babylon, that you will cut it off so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be desolate forever. That's important. 
When you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it, cast it in the midst of the Euphrates River, which is where it runs through Babylon. And say, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster I am bringing upon her, and they shall become exhausted. Now, has this been fulfilled? Yes and no. Yes, it's been fulfilled to the degree that Babylon was destroyed by the Persians. But Babylon, look at what it says. It says, it shall be desolate forever, and it shall rise no more. Babylon still exists and is still occupied. Is it, as a, is it a great city and a great wonder of the world? No. Did Saddam Hussein try to make it that? Yes. Remember, he was rebuilding Babylon. He was really turning it into a really bad Disneyland. I mean, he was. He, he totally ignored archaeology, and he just was building this site for people to come see, a tourist site. But see, it's still occupied. People still live there. It is not desolate, and I believe it will rise again. Now, can I prove it definitively? No. But the point is, there is going to be a city, a literal city, and God will bring destruction on it because it will be the city from which Antichrist reigns and rules the world. And then finally, there's a third angel. And he says with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark in his forehead or on his hand, which we know will happen, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. What's this telling us? Anybody during the tribulation who has decided to worship Antichrist and take this mark so that they can buy goods and sell, guess what? You're done. Your chances are over. When it says the full strength of God's wrath, what does that mean? Undiluted wrath. Now, can you imagine what that looks like? It means wrath with no mercy attached to it. No grace, no mercy, no favor. Undiluted divine wrath. Where have we seen that? Think Sodom and Gomorrah. Just poured out wrath. Nobody can stop it. These people will not be extended mercy. They had their chance and they chose Antichrist. Why do I say they had their chance? Because there were 144,000 Jews traveling around the world, sharing the gospel. Two witnesses who we'll meet later will spend three and a half years sharing the gospel in Jerusalem. It'll probably be broadcast on TV and these people will reject it over and over again. And finally, God says, you're done and you will get the full brunt of my wrath, full strength into the cup of his anger. And here's what we get really uncomfortable with. Look at what it says. And he, that individual who rejects Jesus Christ, who worships Antichrist, will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up for how long? For two weeks. And then it's done. Then they're annihilated. No, that's not what it says. It says they will be tormented with fire and sulfur forever and ever. Now, is hell a hard concept to get your head around? Yes. Is hell something, is it a place any of us would ever want to go? No. Is it a place where we would want to send anybody? Let's be honest. Yes. Right? Come on, be honest. There are people you would love to send to hell if it exists. But when you read this passage and so many others in scripture, if hell is real, and I believe it is because Jesus believed it is, I wouldn't want to send anybody there. But look at this. Tormented with fire and sulfur, Torment forever and ever. It's a real place and people will end up there. See, when we say it's an everlasting gospel, 
That means it's got a good news and a bad news to it. Those who accept that gospel will have everlasting peace, everlasting joy. Those who, re who reject it will what? They'll have no rest day or night, no peace, no joy, no relief. It's eternal. You reject God's son and it has eternal consequences. You accept God's son, it has eternal consequences. You can't have one or the other. Yes, there's a heaven, but there's no hell. See, this book is a book of contrast. This chapter is a chapter of contrast. And so then it goes on in verse 12, and this is a weird place to put this, but it says, here's a call for the endurance of the saints. What's he talking about? Why would he say this right here, right now? He's talking to those 144,000, any other person who's living during that time. Remember, this is written for those people. And he's telling them, you need to endure. Stay firm, stay strong. Don't give up, don't give in. This is an eternal gospel. It has lasting ramifications. God's not done yet. He has come to redeem. He's come to establish his kingdom. Don't give up. See, these 144,000 have lasted all during the tribulation and they're coming near the end and he's going, don't give up yet. Endure, wait, it's not finished. And see, he's telling you and I, by extension, the same thing. As bad as it gets around you, don't give up. Don't give in, endure and overcome. Now, here's what I want you to understand. That is not your job to do on your own. In other words, man, I just, I gotta, I gotta hang on. I gotta last. I gotta, I gotta endure. I gotta overcome. I gotta, no, this is not your job. This is God's job. But you've got to remember that he gives you the capacity to endure. Look at Romans eight. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? No, nothing. Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or we're persecuted, hungry, destitute, or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ. And that's the key. See, you are in Christ. I'm making an assumption. If you are in Christ, you will endure. If you don't endure, you never were in Christ. If you know of people who had claimed to be believers and now they are not worshiping Jesus Christ, they're not darkening the door of the church, they've walked away from that. And I've got a brother who's done just that, former pastor, doesn't believe Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, doesn't believe in a literal hell or heaven. He does not worship God Almighty. He never was a believer. Well, Ken, he was a pastor. What does that mean? That means he got a degree. That means somebody was dumb enough to hire him but it doesn't mean he's a believer. And I don't think he ever was or is. And he's not going to overcome without Christ. See, these 144,000 and anybody else on the planet will overcome because of Jesus Christ. And then finally, we'll stop here. He says, blessed are those, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors and for their deeds for their deeds follow them. What an interesting statement. He's talking about any of those who die and there will be more people who die that are martyred. And yet, guess what? They're blessed. They die and they get blessing. Those who've taken the mark of the beast will die and receive cursing. 
See, it's a book of contrast. It's a chapter of contrast. Blessed are those who die. Why? Because we know what happens. See, God has this all figured out. Paul tells us in Romans 8, whom he foreknew, he predestined. Who he predestined, he called. Who he called, he justified. And whom he justified, he will glorify. See, he's not done yet. The day is coming when you and I will receive new bodies. We will be glorified. We will be with him. And that's the key. That's why we endure, because we know the story's not over yet. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Death will no longer have a sting. Death will no longer have any reign over you and I. And it doesn't now. If you die today, you know where you're going if you're in Christ. If you die today and you're not in Christ, guess what? I've just told you where you're going. He's just told you where you're going. That's why this is so important and so significant. So here's your questions. And if you're a table shepherd or if you look at the bottom of your notes, they're different than what is there because I'm not doing the rest of chapter 14. So here's your questions. Why do you think that we even as believers struggle with seeing death as a blessing and a victory? What does this passage reveal that should change our perspective? Do you fear death? Do you worry about tomorrow, the eternity? Is it real? Am I in? Am I out? Why do we see death as maybe not a blessing and why should we? The next time you find yourself facing difficulties, what lessons could you apply from the lives of the 144,000? Remember, they've lived through seven years of literal hell on earth, but they've endured. They've made it to the end. Why do you think we're so quick to recognize and appreciate the redemption of God, but wrestle with any mention of his wrath? Why are these two aspects of his character and nature compatible and not mutually exclusive? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this word. Thank you for the book of Revelation. As difficult as it is, Father, it's full of truth about you, about the reality of the gospel, the reality of hell and heaven, reward and punishment, blessing and cursing. It's full of reminders of your faithfulness, your covenant-keeping capabilities that, Father, what you said to Abram will, will happen, what you promised to David will take place that your son will return, and Father, we can rest in that. So I pray your blessing on the time around the tables. Just help it be rich and open and clear and concise and encouraging. And may we walk out of this room with our heads held high because we are children of the King and we worship a King who has a plan and he's working it to perfection. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.